0: Hey there, this is Kim on the Startup CPG team. Did you know that over 70% of in-store promotions are not effective and over 80% of brands will fail while promoting at the shelf? But you have to run promotions with retailers. So what's the solution? Thankfully, Promomash, the only all-in-one promotion management platform, and Crisp, a leading retail data platform that integrates with over 40 retailers, have developed a joint solution that gives CPG brands a level of visibility and control they've never had before over their trade spend and promo performance. A free 30-day risk-free trial is available exclusively for Startup CPG members. Just go to promomash.com slash startup CPG. Promomash is spelled P-R-O-M-O-M-A-S-H. To see for yourself what more effective promotion planning looks like, that's promomash.com slash or the link is in the show notes.
1: This week, we're bringing back one of our most popular episodes of all time and of last year, 2022, Angel Investing 101. This episode aired last November, and while the fundraising landscape continues to shift and evolve, Marsha Dawwood's advice continues to ring true as a seasoned angel investor and an important member of the investing landscape. She's actually wrapping up her tenure as the chair of the board for the Angel Capital Association because she's been appointed to the U.S. SEC Securities and Exchange Commission as a member of the Small Business Capital Formation Advisory Committee, where she'll continue to support entrepreneurs and how fundraising works. Marsha's the kind of person you want to learn from, and with the number of requests in the start of CPG Slack that I've seen lately about learning how angel investing works, I thought it was time to once again share Marcia's wisdom. We're also migrating podcast hosting platforms, so you shouldn't experience any interruptions to your listening experience, except that if you'd like to listen via web browser instead of a specific podcast app, there's a new link that you can use in the show notes. Please reach out to me with any questions at podcast at startupcpg.com. And if you haven't already, I'd also appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us continue to grow the show. I hope you enjoy this
2: conversation. So the worst thing that a founder can do is only give updates around the time when they're looking for money, because angels know that or investors know that they they know that you're only being nice because you're waiting for the next check. Welcome to the Startup
1: CPG podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. You've all let me know that fundraising content is among some of your favorites. So I thought I would bring my favorite angel investing expert on the show, Marsha Dawwood for a 101 level episode on angel investing. Marsha currently serves as the chair of the board for the Angel Capital Association, the professional society for angel investors in the U.S. and globally. She is an investor in several early stage private companies. And in addition to her own investing, she is a venture partner with Mindshift Capital and a part of the investment committee for Next Wave Impact Fund. Marsha and I actually met at an angel capital association event back when I worked in that industry, and I'm so grateful we've been able to stay in touch and that I get to introduce her to you all today. I asked Marsha to help us understand angel investors and their motivations, and I think she really delivered. Listen in as Marsha shares about definitions of an angel investor and angel groups, the prerequisites to being an angel investor and how angel investors make returns and impact, the difference between crowdfunding and fundraising from angel investors, tips for deciding whether to seek outside investment from angel investors, inside the angel investor mindset and how to build your outreach and pitches to get the best response, the function of a board of directors and the role of board members, resources for learning about angel investing and why you need a good startup attorney, how to find and connect with angel investors and keep them up to date whether they've invested already or not, and more. And stay tuned at the end for the first ever bonus segment. Today, featuring Startup CPG Shelfie Award winner, Uproot teas Marsha and I will share our reviews mid-episode, and then at the end of the episode, you can catch a mini-interview with Uproot Tees founder, Cindy, to learn more. Now let's hear from Marcia.
2: Hi, Marsha. Welcome to the show today. How are you? Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good to see you again.
1: Yeah, good to see you. I think you are the guest that I've had on the show that I've known the longest, I think, um, since nice. we met in like 2015 yeah, or so. Yeah, around
2: 2015.
1: Yeah. yeah, so it's so nice to like see you and Marsha's been on my like personal podcast and just like has been an amazing connection over the years, and just such a wealth of knowledge. So I'm so excited to share with our audience today, all of the yeah, Marsha's wealth of knowledge and just experience. And so yeah, so happy that you're here today. Thank you. Well, I'd love if you could tell us just a little bit about your about yourself, about Mindshift Capital, about the Angel Capital Association, like your background in angel investing, since that's what we're going to focus on, like just a little
2: bit more about you. Sure. So I became an angel investor. It was over 10 years ago now. And I didn't really have any idea what angel investing was. I thought, I, I don't even know as somebody said, hey, do you want to come to this angel investing group meeting? And I was like, what's angel investing? I have no idea. And uh, I ended up going and I was just fascinated at the amount of innovation that was happening. And I was living in Pittsburgh at the time. I didn't really think of Pittsburgh as an innovation center, but it certainly has become one um, over the many years. And they have amazing universities. They have amazing entrepreneurs there. And I just my eyes were open to this new world. And so I started to learn more and more about it. I then um, became a member of the board of the Angel Capital Association. We are, we do not invest. We are the professional society of all angel investors in the US. So we educate, we do public policy work to make sure our legislators know how important entrepreneurship is to our economy. Uh, We do things like collect data and try to help people be smarter about the decisions that they're making related to investing. And then part of um, what the other part of what I do is with Mindshift Capital, we are a women-led venture firm that invests in women-led companies. And so I'm a venture partner. What that means is that I help to source some of the deals, especially here in the U.S., that are, you know, mainly, uh, of course, women-led, but mainly tech. So we invest in food tech, health tech, ed tech or fintech companies. Very
1: cool. Because, yeah, if I remember right, Mindshift has a, is a global fund. You source deals from all over all over the world.
2: Yeah. Primarily the Middle East, um, a little bit in Turkey, you know, um, Pakistan even now. So lots of interesting things happening all over the world. Yeah, that's so cool. I think I think you say
1: at the end of your podcast, which will We'll talk about um, as I'm a listener to Marsha's podcast, but I think you say uh, if you want to be the change in the world, invest in the change you want to see in the world. And so I love seeing you live that out as something that you say
2: and then hearing the ways that you live that out. Yes. And in fact, I just recorded about two weeks ago a TED Talk where that was my theme. If you want to be the change, you need to invest in the change you want to see in the world.
1: Ooh, I love that! If there's a video to that, we should we'll link that in the show notes because that's
2: that's awesome. Yeah, as soon as it's out, that's it takes a little while till they uh, yeah. actually up, but yeah, it'll be out soon.
1: That's amazing! And how many like how many angel groups and and
2: investors are in the Angel Capital Association? So we have about 250 groups, and we represent about 15,000 angels. As wow, we 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 try to represent you know the good majority of the angel investors at least here in North America. We do have some global investors as well as members. But really what we want to do is is bring people together. We're we're a great networker. We have events. We allow people to come together. Um, We have an annual summit and then we do uh, some regional events here and there. And we have a lot of syndication platforms where people can get to know each other and also get to share deal flow.
1: Yeah. And then as far as data, there's the angel funders report, right?
2: Right. Yes. We put that out every year. In fact, by the time you release this podcast episode, the the Angel Funders Report with the 2021 data will be released. And you can get that on the Angel Capital Association's website, which is just angelcapitalassociation.org. Okay, awesome.
1: Yeah, I'll link that in the show notes too. So just to kind of like frame our conversation, I wonder if you can... Start us off with some kind of like 101 definitions, like what is an angel investor and like how does an angel investor differ from like a venture capitalist? And then you mentioned like angel groups versus individual angels. Like what's the difference between an angel group and in an individual investor?
2: Perfect. So if you haven't seen it already... You could definitely put in the show notes the link to my rap battle. I wrote a rap battle for angel investors versus venture capitalists, kind of like Snow White versus Elsa. That's kind of where I got the idea. Um, But it explains a little bit about the difference between what an angel investor is and a venture capitalist. So
1: hold up. Did Marsha just say rap battle? Let me just head to YouTube here real quick. Angel investor
2: versus venture capitalists. Let the graph battle begin. I'm here to tell you, hon, about my funds and their game. I got so many investments, I'm just making it rain. My LPs, they love me. I'm on fund number 10. That's more than your group will ever have in AUM. The startups line up. They just see who gets to pitch. Graphs with hockey sticks showing how we're all getting rich. We pick the best. It's a quest. And it's really quite fun. Our dollars are smart. It's an art. Your money's just dumb that's not nice very mean you seem quite cold-hearted we are angels we rise up we will not be outsmarted we are mentors advisors networking gurus you put money in i'm not sure what else you do By the way, our checks come from our own accounts. You use other people's money. We're the ones with all the clout. We provide capital to companies at the earliest stages. We are simple, compromising. Your term sheets are pages and pages. We create structure and trust and build up the culture. You're predatory investors. That's why your capital is called vulture.
1: Yep, that's Marcia rapping about angel investors versus venture capitalists. Make sure to watch the whole video for the added visual effect and full lesson. I added the link in the show notes. First, we had Seth Goldman's sea shanty. Now Marsha rapping. I think all this musical content is adding a whole new level to the podcast.
2: An angel investor is somebody who writes a check out of their own checkbook and invests into an early stage company or what's better known as a startup. And a startup um, can get funding from a lot of different places. But at the beginning, it's very, very hard because they're they're very young and it's pretty risky investment. They usually have to start with friends and family or people that they know or people who have a strong interest in whatever it is that they're building. Um, then when they get to an angel group, an angel group is a more sophisticated version of angel's pooled together. Um, They've kind of established themselves in one particular area or one particular sector and they invest together. And always great to be dealing with an angel group. Sometimes you can, they're hard to find. Sometimes you can find angels who are super wealthy and they might rate bigger checks. But at the end of the day, You know, most angels they don't have a lot of disposable income to put toward this asset class, and we always tell people to be very careful about how much money um, they're putting into alternative assets. Alternative assets could be anything, like real estate, wine, um, anything that's not like a publicly traded stock. And so, private investments fall in that category. And so, being with a part of an angel group is great because you get to meet other people, network with other people, but you're you're also getting the Um, all of the expertise of everybody in that group. So let's say that a company is doing X and they come to an angel group and they're looking for funding. And now there's like three of the 50 members actually have experience in that industry. They can be very valuable in evaluating the company. And not only that, let's say that then the angel group, a couple people are interested. So they end up uh, writing some checks and they give that money to invest in this company. They can go on and help the company to grow in a lot of cases because they have a level of expertise or they have a network or they have people they can introduce them to so that that company can go on and and um, grow and get to meet more milestones, which will allow them to then get to a place where they can raise more money. Right.
1: So usually angel investors are much earlier stage taking on more risk and potentially going to be more, provide more connections, expertise to you than when you're further down in the road and maybe raising like institutional sort of capital.
2: Exactly. And, you know, VC money is great uh, when you're at that later stage and, you know, you have um, more product built out, you know, they're not going to come in at the very earliest of stages. Now they have some, some of them will have like a seed fund, they call it, where like S-E-E-D, where, you know, they might pick some companies to invest in early on. But for the most part, it's angels that are investing early. In fact, I've heard the statistic thrown around that like at least 90% of the deals that venture capitalists invest in actually come from angels investing first. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. And so for an for an angel investor, like what, what does one need to To do to become an angel investor, because I think that's something you talk about on your on your podcast of helping people realize that maybe they can be an angel investor. So I think it's interesting to think about, like, who are angel investors and like what they're what it takes to be an accredited investor, per se. Can you
2: talk a little bit about that? Sure. So. There's a couple of things. First of all, nowadays, according to the SEC, because they changed the rules in 2016, and they allow for what's known as equity crowdfunding. Equity crowdfunding is where you invest a little bit of money and you get a small piece of ownership into the company. Some people have heard of Kickstarter, Indiegogo, even GoFundMe. They're a way to do crowdfunding, but this is different. This is equity crowdfunding where they would actually get a piece of ownership into the company. In 2016, when the rules were changed, that allows for anybody to invest for as little as $50. Um, Now, what you're talking about with when we throw around the term accredited, accredited is a little bit of a deceiving term from the standpoint of it kind of sounds like you have to have a credential, almost like a certification or something like that. And that's not the case. It's strictly a definition. And it was put out there by the Securities and Exchange Commission to say that if you have a certain level of wealth or a certain level of income, then you are now what they consider accredited, meaning that you have in their mind enough wealth or income that if you did make an investment like this and you lost a little bit of it, you would not be completely destitute. I guess that's kind of how they look at it. So essentially, they What they are really trying to avoid is people who who absolutely cannot afford it, who are on fixed incomes and things like that. They don't want them to get caught up in too many things that might not allow them to be able to, you know, continue survival. All those fun things Uh, we want to make sure that they're taken care of. So the public markets are very regulated. If you invest in a stock, you can get all kinds of information about that company. The private markets are not regulated in the same way. And that's why we have these um, rules around that the SECs put these rules around actually making investments. Right. So with like the
1: crowdfunding rule that you mentioned, does that, so, you know, when we're talking about seed rounds, series A, like, does that rule impact any of those types of raises? Or is that, you know, a different kind of set of, you know, a different raise that you're actually doing when you use what falls into those guidelines?
2: So without getting too technical, because there's all these um, regulations around how you end up raising, there's reg D and reg A, reg A plus, reg CF is crowdfunding. Um, It depends on the offering. Um, most of the time, if people are doing a crowdfunding campaign for an equity crowdfunding campaign, they'll do that. and then maybe later or even or before. They could do uh, where they're raising a priced round. We call it where they would, you know, raise like let's say a seed round, and they would have accredited investors come into that. So they're they're different offerings. Um, typically, it's not really the best idea to have them going on at the same time. It's confusing to the marketplace. So usually, you would do one, uh, and then once that was done, you. Know, If then you'd hopefully have enough money to be able to hit some milestones and actually grow the business before you'd have to fundraise again.
1: Right. And then, how again, I like to think about what an investor is thinking about. So, like, how does an angel investor make money? Like, and then are they building out like a portfolio? With a certain number of companies, can you talk a little bit about like what that looks like from the investor side of how they're going to make a return?
2: Yeah, so this is definitely risky, uh, a risky asset class. It's uh, you're putting capital to work in a very risky environment with startups. But um, so that's why we talk about diversification and diversification is super important. And it basically means that you want to expose yourself to as many possible options as you can get. And in a lot of cases, that means if you are an angel and you're writing checks directly to a company, that would mean that you would want to write to, you know, write many checks over a time period, let's say three to five years, maybe, you know. Studies show that you want to have at least 10, maybe 15, even 20 companies in your portfolio at a minimum with, um, then there's. So that would be if you were um, a direct angel investor, you could also invest through funds. There's angel funds, there's VC funds. Um, nowadays, there are a lot of funds that you can invest in for, I'll say what's considered a lower dollar amount. And when I say lower, I just mean typically um, in the past when I'm, I'm talking like at least five, 10 years ago, if you wanted to invest in a venture fund, you had to put in a minimum of at least $250,000, if, if not a million. And in In those cases, you know, almost everybody is getting knocked out of that. You know, we don't have that kind of money to be able to do that. So nowadays, though, with uh, angel funds, some cases you could put in as little as ten thousand dollars and be able to diversify your portfolio and have maybe ten or even fifteen companies that you would have exposure to, as opposed to some angels will write checks twenty thousand dollars a piece. I mean, that's a lot of money to to get ten companies in your portfolio. I mean, you'd, you'd now be Investing at least two hundred thousand. So you know when you're thinking about it, and the the risk factor is it's kind of like it's like anything. You want to make sure that where you have a lot of risky assets, you're keeping that as a small amount of your investable assets, and then. In the other, the other money that you're investing, you will put into, you know, all different types of things. You work with your financial planner on that or you work with, you know, a um, platform like E-Trade or Fidelity or anything like that. And they'll give you a lot of options, for, you know, based on your risk profile. But I would say that angel investing is probably much Higher end. Now, with risk can come reward. Um, Even though there are a lot of companies that do go out of business or they don't make it, they run out of money. Number one reason why a startup doesn't make it is they run out of money. Um, There can be some big hits. And, you know, people, the big ones are the ones that we hear about like Uber, Google, Apple you know, people invested really early days in that and, you know, became like cajillionaires. But um, more realistically is you, if you're an angel investor and you're in it for the long haul, meaning that it does take five, seven, 10 years for a company to exit, you would probably have, um, you know, depending if you have a diversified portfolio, you could have several companies that would return maybe two or three times the money that you invested. That's like, what we would consider to be a really good uh, return. Um, You hope that you're gonna have one company um, in the group that returns maybe like a 10 or 15X. And if that's the case, great. But if the number one reason and the only reason that people are investing is for a financial return, then you're probably in the wrong business doing angel investing because they do want to invest in the change they want to see in the world. They want to help entrepreneurship thrive. They want to see the types of innovation that's happening. Um, You you can't have innovation without risk. It's just, it's not going to happen. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be in the country we live in and be for people to be able to think up and try to do anything they want to um, if it wasn't risky. So there is a lot of risk, but there can be a lot of reward.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's super helpful. Do you feel like your email and SMS marketing campaigns are falling flat? If you want to increase customer retention and convert leads, a winning email and SMS marketing strategy is a must-have. Strategy Maven Agency transforms your email and SMS program to help you increase sales, build real customer loyalty, and focus on impactful results. Strategy Maven Agency delivers to help scale your brand, especially if you feel frustrated by revenue plateaus, were let down by another agency, would rather use your time to focus on other initiatives, or if you've let your email and SMS program get a little neglected. They are experts, aka mavens, and will treat your CPG brand like their own. So say goodbye to cookie cutter strategies and promises without execution. For a free account audit, go to strategymavenagency.com and mention Startup CPG. That's strategymaven, en agency.com and be sure to mention Startup CPG for a free account audit. Are you looking to get your products in front of 17,000 foodies? Consider exhibiting at the IFT First Conference, happening in Chicago, July 16th through 19th. The expo is put on by the Institute of Food Technologists, IFT, and filled with buyers, investors, product developers, research and development professionals, and innovators. There will be a startup pitch competition giving away $15,000 in prizes, plus 100 scientific panels, more than 800 exhibitors, plus the Startup Pavilion featuring 100 food and food tech startups. Booths in the Startup Pavilion are affordable at just $575. The theme of this year's IFT First is innovation in a time of crisis. Can we future-proof the food system? To learn more about IFT First and how to get a startup kiosk, Go to iftevent.org. That's I-F-T as an in Institute of Food Technologists, iftevent.org. And the link is in the show notes. And for, you mentioned an exit, like, for angel investors and investing in general, are there other scenarios other than an exit that an angel investor makes a return?
2: Or is that the primary method? Like curious about that piece? That is the primary method um, most of the time. And it's not because the companies go public. Um, so some people think, oh, we're going to do an IPO. You hear that sometimes. and eh, That's usually statistically showing that doesn't really happen. It's usually where the company gets acquired. That's a very traditional exit route. However, um, nowadays, there are other types of ways that angels can get paid back. And one of them that's becoming pretty popular is called revenue-based financing. And let's say that you have, and I know for for this particular podcast, you have a lot of consumer packaged goods. Um, Let's say you have a company that is producing revenue. Uh, You can go out and if Um, You find a revenue based financing group or, or fund, you could apply for funding there. And if you get that funding, what happens is you don't have to give up any equity in your company, which is huge. So what would happen instead is you would agree to pay back at a percent of your revenue. So let's just, I'll just use numbers and I have no idea if these are actually accurate, but let's say that you got, I don't know, um, 200 or 500, let's just say $500,000 to make it easy um, and from revenue-based financing, you would then be paying back that money over a period of time, a certain percent of your revenue. So every month, the end of the um, month, you would see, oh, my company made, uh, again, I'll just use a round number, like a hundred grand, Um, you would have to take a percent of that and give it back. And then you would keep doing that until it was paid back. It's pretty aggressive. So from the standpoint of, you know, you could be paying back um, a pretty, you know, relatively speaking, a a larger chunk of your revenue um, in order to pay it down. But if you are a company that is producing regular revenue, it's definitely an option. Yeah. Very interesting.
1: I'm also curious about... Tips that you have for a company deciding whether they should seek outside funds, because we see this come a lot up a lot in our sort of CPG community of I think I could use I think I could use more money. You know, should I should I uh, raise money from angel investors? Um, And I'm wondering about your perspective on what people should think through when they're deciding to raise money. Are there companies that, you know, shouldn't probably seek outside funds depending on their goals? Um, Yeah. Just curious about your perspective on that. And if you have any specific, you know, CPG, um,
2: you know, pieces in there, that's definitely uh, awesome as well. So I would say if you have any way to not raise money, don't raise money because uh, you if the longer that you can bootstrap your company, the more you can get non-dilutive funding, whether that's through uh, grants or getting help with whatever R&D you're putting together. Um, you know, in some cases, you know, with consumer packaged goods, you might not need uh, r and d or you might. It depends. Um, you know, but anything that you can do in order to get that built out. and what I see sometimes is, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a consumer company and they had exited a previous company. So they had some money from that and they were able to put that to use for the new company. and then that was you know how they grew it. By the time they took on angel investors, they were well on their way had contracts with, you know, some of the bigger distributors and, you know, that got them, you know, it was very attractive to the incoming investors. What isn't very attractive is when somebody comes out of the gate and says, well, you know, I really need to raise money for my company. I I want to grow it. And this is what I'm doing. And they, they may have an absolutely fabulous idea. And then You would say to them, well, okay, but have you like tried to raise money from people that you know? Oh, well, I I don't want to ask people I know. Well, why not? Well, because I don't think, what if it doesn't work? Okay, but so you're okay to take money from angels, but you're not okay to take money from people that you know. That's like a a bad sign.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, And then, Like, I think I've heard you talk about like the, the team, like the team when you're looking at a co- company that's raising funds and that you're looking for maybe even first of all a team. But can you talk about a little bit about that team piece?
2: Yeah, the team is, you know, you, you hear people say, oh, we're betting on the jockey, not the horse. You know, people can have a fabulous idea and if they don't have the right team to take it to the finish line, it's it's not going to go anywhere. So, or you could have like a pretty good idea, but if you have the right team, chances are you're going to end up pivoting at some point in your business and doing something a little bit different than what you started with. So if you don't have the perfect product at the perfect time with the perfect market, that's okay. But you really need to just get out there and get started, and you need to be surrounded with the people that complete the team. So it can't be all engineers that are trying to run a company. It can't be all visionaries who are trying to run the company, and it can't be all of the salespeople who are trying to run the company. You need a little bit of all of that in order to get to the finish line. Yeah,
1: when you when when you take on outside investment money also when as the founder and you know this company has been yours up to this point potentially and wholly yours is it also something to think through that maybe someday you won't be ceo like you know this adding outside funds is going to add outside perspectives. Like maybe you won't lead this the whole time now that other people own it. Like, I'm curious about the mindset to kind of think through of as you're adding other people that now own something that you originally created.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something to think about. You know, the good, good CEOs out there will be able to run their company and take it you know, to a certain point, and then they're going to know when they don't have the level of expertise to take it farther. But if they take it that far, and they're really working with their investors, and they're keeping that line of communication open, and they're working with their board, um, it it could be a real win win. I've seen it happen over and over again, where the the founder is still involved and can still be part of what's happening. But you know, now you're bringing somebody in who can grow the company to the level that you really want for exit.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk more angel investing content in a minute, but we're going to take a little break and talk about tea. Um, And I believe Marsha is drinking tea along with me. So at Startup CPG, we had our annual Shelfie Awards and uh, one of the winners was Uproot Teas. And so that's what we are trying today. So I am drinking the uh, hojicha tea and earlier today I had the peppermint and yesterday I had genmai cha. So I've been trying all the uproot teas, um, really enjoying, like really interesting. I'm curious, Marsha, like how's your tea so far today? What do you think?
2: Well, I have the chamomile right now because it is a little later in the day. So I didn't want to have any caffeine or else I'd be like "Eh," on the ceiling (laughs) later. Um, But I love it. It's very light. It's not... um, Uh, it's very flavorful, Mm -hmm. uh, but not like overpowering. Sometimes if you let it, sometimes you let tea seep a little bit too long and then you're like, whoa, this is like, but this is lovely.
1: Yeah. I it's, I think the flavors are really amazing. I got to try tiny little samples at Expo West earlier this year and was really impressed. And then to get to like drink a whole cup at home, I've been very happy. And the so they, uh, Uproot Teas won our branding award because the packet and the branding and packaging is really cool. And like the, the tea came in little compostable Ziplocs, which I thought was
2: really cool. I thought that was totally cool. It's, it actually says right on the package that it's worm food. So I love that. Which is so cool.
1: Yeah. So yeah, we're, uh, super glad that the Uproot Teas team kept us fueled today. So thanks Marsha, yes, for thank also you. trying thank with you, me. You. It was super Ooh. fun. Um, and uh yeah, and then for for those listening, there will be a mini interview with Cindy, the founder of Uproot Teas, at the end of this episode. So stay tuned after I talk with Marsha. There'll also be a little mini interview with Cindy all about uh Uproot Teas. So stay tuned. And uh yeah, so that was our our little uh quick little sampling shelfies break. Love it. Awesome. Um, I also am curious about again investor mindset. So like what is what can a brand keep in their mind of like when reaching out to an investor like what's top of mind for an angel and when you're reaching out as a brand or building your pitch deck like what can they keep in mind as far as like kind of putting themselves in the shoes of the audience that
2: they have so it's there's a couple things that are you're going to want to have in that pitch deck and what i always have been telling entrepreneurs at least lately is you want to make it as easy or the investor as possible. Um especially if you're if you want to pitch to an angel group, you know, they get inundated with a lot of information. Usually you have to go through their you know whatever their upload process is where you upload their upload your information as a company to potentially get funding. But I'm telling you, I really think that short videos, if people haven't used Loom yet, I would I love that uh, application. It's fantastic. You can literally make a five minute video. It's free. You can make a five up to a five minute video and then you just can give people the link. You could walk somebody through your pitch deck in five minutes and at least give them enough information so that it's like a teaser. You're never going to give them all the information in five minutes. And that's not the point. The point is to give people enough information to want to sit down and learn more. Because if you're going out initially and you're just trying to get people's attention, trying to get their attention with 60 minutes worth of content and like a 35 slide deck is not going to get their attention. What could get their attention, though, is a three to four minute video of you explaining what your company does and why you're doing it.
1: Yeah, that's a great tip. I, I'm i a huge Loom lover, uh, user, such a good tool. So um, so, yeah, that's that's a super interesting tip. And on the in the, you know, pitch deck or outreach also, you know, since, since there's so many pitches that, uh, an is reviewing or a groups reviewing any advice about kind of like not bearing the lead or like to help, you know, to help make the most important information more clearly accessible and any examples that you have?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't bury the lead. <laughs> it's a good point that you just made. Um, Like at one point, I remember I was this was a while ago, but I was listening to to a pitch and they probably had maybe seven or 10 minutes that they could pitch. And so I'm sitting there and listening. It was a good four or five minutes into the pitch that they mentioned that they had like a really big contract that they just signed with some big company like Walmart or Target or something like that. And I was like, oh, I went and then I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, I wish I would have been paying a little bit more attention. The last four or five minutes, I was more thinking about like what's for lunch and, you know, those types of things. And now I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, why? Why did they wait so long to give, you know, this really big piece of information? So I would start with some of the really big, hot things that are happening with the company and then get into you know, the details. But usually a good pitch deck will start with what problem are you solving and how are you solving it? And you don't want to be a solution in search of a problem. You want to have an actually big, really big, hairy, audacious, (laughs) terrible problem (laughs) that you're solving. And then you can help find the solution. Yeah,
1: that's. I think that's super, that's really helpful perspective to hear too, because I think when, when you're in it day to day and it's your brand, it feels very important and it is very important. It's your life. But when you're reaching out to other people, you're seeing hundreds, maybe thousands of deals and you, you can't, you can't give them all, you can't read all the details of everyone or there'd be no time left in a day. You would need some sort of time turner or something. So making it easy for people to, see if they want to learn more and 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 go into more detail and see if it's a it's a fit that's that's very helpful Yeah. um also in in general are angel investors when you're working with an angel investor are you usually is there going to be a board of directors involved or angel investors sometimes going to sit on the board or forming a board of directors as part of a as an early round. I'm curious about that piece. Yes,
2: um, that's a big part of it. And if you want to know more about that, you should check out Barbara, Barbara Clark's book. And I'll give you the link when we are done here. But she wrote a whole book about building your business through building your board and knowing your board and It is super important, especially at the earliest of stages, because you need those people to be helping you. You should not look at them as like the enemy or that they could potentially fire you or anything like that. Uh, It's more about putting the right people with the right balance on the board of things that you need. So, um, the really good uh, startup founders that I've seen have looked at what they needed as far as board members and Put together a right mix. Usually, at the earliest of stages, it's the founder, maybe one other person from the company, and an investor. And then, when you get into like a Series A round, or maybe a tiny bit bigger, but you're still pretty small, you might have a five-person board. Then, two people from the company, two people in, um representing investors, and then one person who is a uh, you know like an independent or or somebody that would be almost super specific to the industry that you're in. Yeah.
1: And when you sit on the board of a company, what How like how do you view your role? What do you think about when you're sitting on a board or staying in touch with the with a company that you've invested in?
2: Okay, so there's three things. The only three things that a board member should ever worry about at every single board meeting. Number one, and I'll go in order of least importance to most importance. Number one, do you need to change out any of the management team, including the CEO? Do you need to fire the CEO? That's one thing you need to be thinking about. Number two, when and what and how are you going to exit this company? It should be talked about at every board meeting, whether it's you think an exit is going to happen in 10 minutes or 10 years. And the number one most important thing that any board member should be dealing with at any given time is making sure that that company does not run out of money. Yeah, that's very helpful. Because it is not like being on the board of a public company. It's not like being on the board of an established company. It is literally like being on the board of something that is just going crazy all the time. because that's the way startups are. It's just, it's a constant craziness. And it's really important that the CEO and the board have a good relationship and that the CEO feels comfortable to be able to say, hey, this is happening or that's happening. And they also, the CEO also needs to take direction from the board if they're saying, hey, you know what, it seems like your burn rate's too high, you've hired too many people or you haven't hired enough people or you're not growing fast enough. All of those things, those are conversations that you should be having every step of the way.
1: Yeah. Is there anything that you really like to see or, or even they could be things that you didn't like for as far as staying in touch with companies that you've invested in, in as far as like regular updates, you know, whether or not you're on the board, but just kind of any best practices for keeping your investors up to date with what's going on. You kind of mentioned like some, the importance of transparency and being able to share really what's going Mm -hmm. on, but wondering what that can kind of like practically look like if there's good cadences or, you know, just things that you've seen that you're like, oh, I really like staying in touch
2: with, you know, a company when they do X, Y, Z. Yeah, that's a really, really, really good point. So the worst thing that a founder can do is only give updates around the time when they're looking for money because angels know that or investors know that they they know that you're only being nice because you're waiting for the next check. The best founders I've seen are the ones who communicate at a minimum on a quarterly basis. And it doesn't have to be a lot. It literally, if at the end, the best I've ever seen is where there was one founder in particular, he was really, really good at the end of every month. I think what he did was he actually would keep like a running, um, like open draft of an email. And anytime something happened during the month, he would just write a line about what happened. And he would send that to the investors at the end of every month. And it got to a point where people weren't questioning Well, wait a minute. We haven't heard from company X for a while. Why is that? Oh. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, here comes company X. They want some money. All of a sudden we're hearing from them. If. If I have to start to think to myself, I wonder what's going on with that company. That means I haven't heard from you enough because I should be hearing regularly about at least quarterly about what you're doing and where you are with cash, when you think you need to raise again and what milestones have you hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. And to know
1: that it. I like the tip of just like even the running email, like it doesn't have to be complicated to be and hard. fancy.
2: Yeah. People are like, oh, I have to do newsletter. I have to do this big update letter. I have to like put all these financials together. I mean, that would be great. But at the end of the day, we get it. Entrepreneur's life is crazy life. And so being able to just keep communicating and keep those um, those communication channels open because you know what you're always fundraising even if you're not fundraising you're always fundraising so you want to make sure that you're keeping all of your investors informed it's going to make your life a whole lot easier down the road if you want to you know open another round later on Mm
1: -hmm. i'm also wondering about uh like resources since since you are with an organization that has has developed and has so many resources both for angel investors and for entrepreneurs i constantly am sending people to the entrepreneur knowledge center center on the ACA website. But I'm curious about, you know, if, if a founder, if you're raising money for the first time, or even if you've raised an early fund and you're trying to just kind of, you know, you're trying to figure it out. Like, should I do a price round or convertible note or, you know, just trying to kind of get the lay of the land, understand you know, even whether to raise, like, what resources do you tend to point entrepreneurs to that are thinking about
2: fundraising or in the midst of fundraising? Oh well, we could do a whole podcast episode on whether to do a price round or a convertible note yeah. or safe. Um, we've had a couple of those. We have a couple podcasts or um, a couple webinars at the ACA that have gone through that. Um, I think that's going to be my next rap battle too. I'll do a convertible note versus a price Love it. round or <laughs> um, something. <laughs> But I really think it all depends on the company. And if you are a startup company out there and you're pretty, pretty early and you don't have a lawyer that is an expert in startup law, stop everything you're doing right now and go get a lawyer who is a startup attorney. Do not use your friend's brother's sister who is a lawyer who just happened to help you out because she's in family law and she heard about startups before. No, 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 no. Don't do that. I've seen too many people mess up how they form the company, how they develop the company. And even when they first start fundraising, it's going to be different for every company. Priced rounds, convertible notes. There are a lot of factors involved. It depends on the type of industry, the type of company. Like I said, we could do a whole episode on that. Um, But I think it's really, really important that you have a good relationship with a, an attorney who can help you think through what it means for your business.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great that's a really great tip. And then, yeah, there's so much just good how to info or breakdowns, or, you know, there's a lot of great information out there. Like I said, in the Knowledge Center on the ACA website, it's a super, um, super great place to start but yeah i love i love the point about the attorney
2: start start with there get everything set up right from the beginning i literally just had this conversation with this woman and she was like well you know i Um, I don't remember what. She had some kind of family issue. And so she had this attorney that she was using. And all of a sudden, the attorney was creating documents from scratch and charging her all this money to create these documents that weren't even startup documents. They were startup documents this particular person made. And I was like, oh, my gosh, please don't do that. Um, Because there are a ton of them that are already out there. I mean, uh, the National Venture Capital Association has, you know, they have a whole set of Series A docs that you could use once you're at that point. There's resources at the Angel Capital Association. I mean, there are a lot of things out there that can help you where you do need to get an attorney involved, but it does not have to cost a ton of money. Right.
1: Would you say that an attorney specific to like the
2: industry would be helpful as well? Like since, you know, for CPG or just startups? Maybe, maybe. But I'm just saying, like, for when you're starting your business, what you really need is a startup attorney. Yeah, no, that's that's very helpful.
1: Um, And then as far as like finding and connecting with investors, I liked your point earlier that, you know, basically you're always fundraising, whether whether you know it or not. But if you are if you think you're going to fundraise down the road or. Maybe you already are in the process of fundraising. How do you recommend connecting with potential investors and groups? You know, how, how do you how do you kind of start that process? What does that look like? or what do you recommend
2: that that look like? Well, especially if you're a CPG company, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things out there for crowdfunding. And I don't even mean that you have to start with equity crowdfunding, but if you have a really cool product or something that isn't even manufactured yet, but you have the concept, you could go on to Kickstarter. It's a great marketing play. It's like a great way to sell your product. You don't have to give any equity away. You could raise money. I mean, I've done Kickstarter things where they promised it and that I'd get it in like six months and I didn't have it for two years. You know, nobody cares. Like, I mean, maybe some people care, but like, I mean, people understand that you're, you're growing business and you're trying something and they're taking the chance that you, you know, you might get to have this really cool thing down the road. There's that. Um, people should check out Start Engine. Um, you know, it was just, Uh, talking to the CEO, Howard Marks, and he's uh, really building something amazing over there. And so people could get um, funding that way. Um, Network with people. Network with people in a way that before you actually start asking them for money. Like I've literally had people send me LinkedIn messages that say I need $50,000. That's all it says. Oh my Um, gosh. You know, I'm like, "Uh, no. Okay. (laughs) Um, So yeah. So you have to really work on building a network with people before you need the funding, but there's there's a lot of things that you can do and a lot of um, avenues to start looking for that early, so that you don't end up in like a panic and you're like, oh my gosh, I need funding and I don't know where to go. Mm-hmm.
1: Is it like I think you maybe I've heard you say it before, um, and I, I don't remember where it comes from, but the like if you ask for. Um, oh, if yeah. you ask for money, you, you'll get advice. If you ask for uh, advice, you might get money um, sort right, of thing. Right, right.
2: I don't know who first said that either, but it's brilliant because it's true. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Would you would you say to Is it important like like in CPG to kind of look for groups or angels that have some expertise within your industry or, you know, since on the advice note yeah. of reaching out and being like, oh, you, you have experience with, you know, I'm an energy bar, you had an energy bar or, you know, those kind of things. Can those be good connection points as
2: well? hundred percent. In fact, that's the first place I'd go look. You want people that really care about what you're doing, understand what you're doing. They can open doors for you that you wouldn't get even with like the most sophisticated, you know, super angel because they know your space you know you could have somebody who is super accomplished really wealthy who could write you a check but they can't help you open a door you know to get into the industry where you need to be right
1: and if if you reach out to someone and they say no but it, you know or or you know you got advice and you're raising money they say no but but maybe you know maybe it was a not no forever it was a right right um but how, like, how do you recommend staying in touch with with people like that that you meet along the way, like similar, like to kind of keeping people up up yeah. to date like you would would a investor?
2: Yeah. The guy who I was talking about who did the email draft, he would actually send that not just to his investors, but to the friends of, you know, the company, he would call it. and. Um, he he'd send that out to now he wouldn't put anything on there that was you know proprietary or you know something that only investors should know. He'd send that in a different draft. But, you know, for the most part, he he was pretty transparent. He'd let anybody know that wanted to what was going on with the company. Mm-hmm. The more people hear from you and the more people see that you're actually doing things. I mean, in, you can't go on social media and say, I mean, you can under some rules. But again, get a good attorney. They'll explain the rules to you. Um, but, you know, in a lot of cases, you can't just go onto social media and be like, hey, I'm fundraising. Give me money. Um, that's kind of frowned upon by the SEC. So but what you can do is you can keep telling people about the milestones you're hitting with your company. If you you know, were featured in a magazine or because your company or because your product's really cool or you won an award or you got you know, written up in an article. I mean, all of those things, and and just showing the consistency is letting people know. Oh my gosh, I've I've seen you everywhere. I I don't I don't pretend I don't I certainly don't look at myself as somebody who's like really good with social media at all. But I've got people tagging me and things on LinkedIn and everywhere. and I, and then I'll see somebody and they'll be like, Hey, I see you all over social media. I'm like, Really? I'm like, I don't feel like I'm all over social media. But enough times that you're you know so showing kind of what you're doing. People's perception is reality that that you're you're out there you're getting things done.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we recently had
2: from Ouroboros on the podcast talking a little bit
1: about their fundraising journey. And he was saying that he's had people that he's met and like for years that he just kept them on the email list. And, you know, maybe you'd, ha- you'd answer a question, you correspond a little bit, and then it's just years down the road that they're like, you know what, I'm going to jump in on this round. I've seen what you've been doing over these years. And, and exactly. now it makes sense
2: for me. That's exactly right. In fact, you know, I've Several of the companies that MindShift invested in, we've known the founder for years. Sometimes five, six years before we made an investment. Yeah, that that makes sense.
1: um Well, I would love to, you know, tell us a, a little bit about your your own podcast because I, like I
2: said, I enjoy your podcast. I was listening to an episode yesterday. Um, so, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. So it's called The Angel Next Door. There's a lot of podcasts out there to help entrepreneurs and talk about entrepreneurship. But we don't get to hear a lot about how people became angels and why they're, they are angels and then how they kind of fit into the ecosystem. So that's kind of what I'm trying to demystify. Um, I would like it. If everyone was an angel investor in some way, shape or form, whether it's by investing with money, investing with time, investing their expertise, there's a lot of ways that people can help startups and startups need a lot of help. (laughs) You know, founders can be great at their big idea, but sometimes they're not so great at the business part. Sorry. Um, But, you know, they need help in a lot of ways. So what I'm trying to do is get people to know more about this, get to know how they can help. Um, founders, how they can get more connected, especially women, people of color, we're not going to change the amount of funding, the abysmal amount of funding that goes to underrepresented founders until we get more people sitting at the table, writing the checks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And on that... Um, I think you're also um, involved with like the Next Wave Impact Group and CEO. Can you talk about a couple of those
2: organizations as well? Sure. So Next Wave Impact Fund is a fund that was put together to invest in impact companies, meaning helping people and the planet. Um, and we were a group of women who came, came together and pooled our money in order to invest. And we invested in 15 companies. We've had three exits already, which has been amazing. Um. And yeah, and there's a lot of companies that are doing just amazingly well. So that's a great, um, great example of a good success story of people coming together uh, and really looking at a cause and getting a financial return, which is a big deal. I really have kind of a I I have a hesitancy towards using the word impact sometimes because people think impact means um, charity and it's not. It means impact. It means they're doing something big and awesome. And uh, so to show that we can make an impact and we can get a return to me is a huge deal. And um, we've been able to do that at Next Wave. Alicia Robb put the fund together and it's just been incredible. Um, And then um, CEO is a little different. CEO is a nonprofit. They they have people who come and they donate money. And then what they do is they uh, lend out the money at a 0% interest rate to companies but also super super cool concept.
1: Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Again, love love seeing the way that uh that you're living out investing uh in the change you want to see in the world. So that's so those are super cool organizations to to check out. Totally. Yeah. Anything else you want to to share on um yeah, about uh, the Angel Capital Association or anything that that we that we missed?
2: Well, anybody who's interested in education or learning more about angel investing, we are going to be having a, um, a demystifying angel investing webinar. It'll be on December 15th at noon. Eastern time. Uh, You can find out more information on the angelcapitalassociation.com website. Um, If you're listening to this after the 15th of December, 2022, that's okay too. You can still go on to the Angel Capital Association's website and you can get a link and and watch that webinar. It is free. We do have other webinars and other uh, education things. Those are Paid, but definitely a ton of information within the Angel Capital Association. That I encourage everybody, entrepreneurs, angels, anybody, can check out and get a ton of information. And then, yeah, I think you've hit all my my hot buttons. I really think that people need to know more about what what angels do, what entrepreneurs do, of course, because angels wouldn't even be necessary if entrepreneurs weren't around. Um, And really, just getting to know about the super cool things that are happening in the world. I worked in corporate America for about 16, 17 years. And I was fascinated when I started to go to angel meetings and learn about the different innovations happening right in my own backyard. So I encourage everybody to just check it out. And nowadays you can just do it on your phone. You can go to a you go to startengine.com or any of these crowdfunding equity crowdfunding platforms or even Kickstarter and learn about some really cool things that are going on.
1: Yeah. It's so incredible. So well, thank you so much, Marsha. This was Delightful. You shared so much amazing wisdom and I'm so excited to share this episode with our community and just really really appreciate your time and then also just all you do in the world for the startup community for the angel investing community. So so glad that, you know, you could sit down with me and drink some Uproot Tea together and uh, nice. and yeah. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, Jesse. Don't head out just yet. Keep listening for a mini interview with Cindy Lee, founder and CEO of Uproot Teas. You won't want to miss learning out one of our amazing Shelfie Award winners who is making change in the tea world. Hi, Cindy. Welcome to the show today. So excited to have you here. How
3: are you? Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm just sipping my morning peppermint tea, um, having a cozy morning and excited to chat today. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat with you. It's nice to see you again. I got to meet you in real life
1: at Expo West in the organic mm-hmm. tent, which was so fun. And that's where I first got to try your teas. And this morning I'm drinking chamomile in my Baymax mug from Disney World, so. <laughs> I love that, I love that. <laughs> I am a huge fan of all of your teas. I think my current, my current, my favorites change, but uh, I think the Genmai Cha is currently probably my like go-to but I love them I love them all so it's just I love having you here and like I am just such a like tea nerd so it's such an honor to get to talk to someone that's a a TEO and like a you know someone (laughs) that like loves and knows about tea like oh like I'm yeah I'm just a you know a geek here for all the tea the tea knowledge well
3: I'm so happy to get to talk to you as well because you know, a lot of people will tell me what their favorite of my teas is. And for some reason, not too many people say that the Genmaicha is their favorite. Um, And I think it's one that is so special and underrated, especially in the US. I think, Uh you know, everyone knows black tea, green tea, Hojicha is kind of having its moment in urban cafes, but Genmaicha, I feel like, is on the up and up. So I think you're early on the trend here. <laughs>
1: nice. I, I I feel cool. I'll do my part to spread the word that it's, uh, yeah, that it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well,
3: can you tell us a little bit about you know, the story behind starting Uproot Tea? Absolutely. Um, so before the pandemic, I was working in San Francisco as a management consultant at Bain & Company, working mostly with large tech companies and private equity companies. And I had always sort of known during my time there that while it was a great place for me to be Learning a lot of foundational business skills. It wasn't necessarily where I saw myself staying for the long term. And I had always wanted to do something a bit more entrepreneurial. So during the pandemic, I decided to shake my life up a little bit by moving to a new state, quitting my job, um, just kind of changing a lot of things in my life all at the same time. And I really started spending time thinking back to what some of my interests were before I was a consultant. And I thought back to a research paper that I had done back in undergrad. I had majored in economics and I wrote my senior economics paper about the global commodity tea trade. And at the time, it was kind of a half fun project, half just getting to know the background of this commodity product that I had loved my entire life. Coming from um, a Chinese immigrant family, my parents used to bring bags full of loose leaf tea from China to our home in Los Angeles every time they went back to their home country. Um, And I just thought it was so funny that whenever I went to grocery stores or cafes and restaurants, they don't really serve loose leaf tea unless you're going somewhere like a high tea, very fancy, posh type of place. Um, But there wasn't as much uh, loose leaf tea culture um, in in the kind of same environment that I saw whenever I went to visit China, which is just A place to, you know, a tea house is a place for people to just connect, to just slow down with each other and just share a warm beverage. It could be very casual, it could be very long. Um, And so I thought that was just really interesting when I was choosing that topic for this economics paper. And I was really surprised to find out that there's this long, interesting history of um, the global commodity tea trade being set up. And the whole supply chain was something that I was fascinated to learn about. And just the fact that the tea crop passed through hundreds of people's hands before it finally got to the consumer and that the price of tea wasn't determined by the farmer, the person growing and producing it, but rather by global auction houses and then distributors and exporters and importers. And I just thought that, you know, there must be a way to get consumers tea that was not only fresher and better quality but also had a more traceable supply chain so that consumers could learn more about where exactly their tea is coming from and um you know during this time of living in San Francisco working as a consultant I actually got very involved in my farmers market communities I started volunteering for um farmers markets just packing curbside veggie boxes during covid and I got to know a bunch of the small food vendors at the farmers markets and kind of getting into the SF scene of artisanal, uh, you know, single origin goods, whether that's things like chocolate or coffee. And I just saw all of these um, really interesting business models where they were doing something that was more direct trade with the farmers and producers. And there's a lot more tra- traceability and transparency in the supply chains. And not only is that, you know, a good ethics, but also it makes the consumers so much more engaged in the stories of the brand and where the products are coming from. And I thought that was so cool. So going back to then, you know, deciding to uproot my, my life. Okay. Pun kind of intended. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I then was like, okay, I was so interested in this tea research I had done before. Why don't I try to take it one step further and see what it's really like to be a tea farmer? And I decided to go work on a tea farm for a month in Hawaii. And I was on Maui working with a really, really small, um, family-owned, sustainable, regenerative farm. And it was really cool to learn not only about the whole process of producing tea, um, that was just mind-blowing to learn more about, it was also really cool to see what does it mean to be a sustainable farm in this day and age and what are all of the inputs and all of the things required to grow tea sustainably. And that that was so inspiring. And it was during that month long stay on this farm that I decided to start Uproot Teas where I wanted to work with farmers like the ones that I was with in Hawaii um, to get consumers really, really high quality tea and also empower farmers to continue growing sustainably and telling their stories.
1: Yeah.
3: Oh, that's amazing.
1: And so all of your teas are single origin, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah that's so cool. So how did you, did you launch with like a tea that was from that The farm that you went to first, then how did you find the other farms to connect with?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So now I have three amazing farm partners. The first one is um, a farm in Hawaii. That's where our Makai Black Tea is from. Um, And I knew I wanted to launch with a simple yet nice variety of teas that I could offer to any tea drinker. So I had in my mind that I wanted to start with some sort of black tea, a green tea and an herbal or botanical tea. And so I already knew I wanted that specific black tea from Hawaii. It's won lots of tea awards in in the past. As soon as I tried it, I was just like, I've never had black tea like this before. It's so malty and caramelly and floral. It's amazing. And if some, I try to imagine if someone has never had loose leaf tea before. What kind of experience do I want them to have? And I was like, this black tea is it? Um, And then so for the green tea, I actually got connected by the farmers in Hawaii to one of their friends in Kyoto, Japan, who has a tea farm there and he specializes in very classic Japanese green teas. So the Sencha is what I ended up going with. It's just such a delicate, very mild, um, but also a bit earthy green tea. So I wanted to launch with that one as well. And then I wanted to find a farm that could supply me with herbals and botanical teas. I went to college in New Hampshire. And when I was there, I, I had volunteered on an organic farm. So I was a bit familiar with the different farms in the area and what they specialized in. And I had actually always heard of a farm in Vermont just across the Connecticut um, and how amazing their chamomile blossoms were, which is what you're drinking now. And I just thought it was so cool that this farm specializes in whole chamomile blossoms rather than grinding up the flower just because I think you know so many people have had chamomile tea before but most of the time it comes in a tea bag or it's really finely ground so you never actually get to see the flowers themselves and see what they look like and I also just think with the whole blossoms when you open the pouch and smell them you just get punched with this sweet apple smell and it's so so amazing so I yeah, that's how I decided to launch with those three teas and those three farms as well. That's
1: amazing. Yeah, it's I I love seeing the whole flowers and like these are just like they're so high quality and like there's just there's no comparison to drinking like a bag of tea that you get at the grocery store chamomile to this like it's a completely different experience yeah. like if you like that at the store this is gonna blow your mind like yeah. you're gonna be like this is the greatest thing ever because yeah and then it's a multi-layered experience because you get to see the flowers they're beautiful mm-hmm. you get that smell and then you're steeping them and then the tea itself is just So good. So, yeah, yeah.
3: exactly. I love giving, showing people the multi sensorial experience that you can have with tea. And actually, in a lot of my live, whether it's virtual or in person tea tastings or tea workshops that I do, I always typically walk people through um, a sensorial experience through the five senses. And we talk about for seeing the tea leaves or flowers and then the smell and then watching the water infuse through all of the tea leaves. And I think one really magical moment for most people in experiencing loose leaf tea for the first time is then getting to taste and smell the flavor profile change a little bit once you re-steep it a second time or a third time or a fourth time. And that's something that you just can't get out of a tea bag because with tea bag tea typically you're getting either broken bits or tea dust, which inherently there's nothing wrong with. But the downside is that you won't get as many re-steeps out of it because there just isn't enough surface area for the pot water to penetrate. But with loose leaf tea, you're typically getting a fuller flower, a fuller tea leaf. And so the options for the number of re just increase. And um, it's just such an experience to go through all of those. And I yeah. think when when people first learn about it, their minds are blown and it's so fun to be part of that.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's amazing. And when I, when I had, when I kind of like switched to loose leaf tea, it was just, it was such a game changer. Like I went from being someone that like, kind of like tea to being borderline obsessed with tea and having a
3: tea <laughs> nook <laughs> in my house. So, you know, like it, it really, it really changed the game. Same. Oh, same. <laughs> and I think it's always so funny because, you know, there are so many more people in the U.S. now who are really into specialty coffee. And it's been so inspiring actually for a tea lover's Perspective to watch this third wave coffee movement and watch that accelerate during the pandemic as well, where a lot of people got really into you know home cafe and making the perfect latte at home and having all these tools and gadgets and getting really into single origin beans and specific kinds of roasts and all of that. And I really think there is a, an opportunity for tea to take the same sort of cultural nuance to that level um, and there are tons of cool tea gadgets that you can have. There are tons of different roasts of tea that you can get into different, you know, origins. And so I'm quite excited because I think we're on the precipice of that for tea.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so too. And when you launched, I think you sold out very quickly, right? Can you tell us a little bit about
3: that? Yes, absolutely. So I launched December of last year. So we're hitting just about the one year mark soon. And it was such a in hindsight, you know, I didn't necessarily plan to launch in December, I wanted to launch earlier. But as you know, things just Get pushed back. Um, so I ended up launching December first, twenty twenty one, and it was such a great time because not only were we entering holiday season, but you know the colder weather tea is a pretty seasonal product. Um, it and you know who doesn't like getting gifted tea? So we sold out of um, two out of the three types of teas that we launched with um, within the first two weeks, and so luckily you know, it was right before I was fulfilling all of the holiday orders. So we got them shipped out and then kind of had to regroup. I had to chat with all of my farm partners and try to predict um, what my inventory needs were going to be for the next couple of months. Um, But that was really exciting and really, really validating. And I didn't expect that to happen, but I'm really happy it did. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: And I'm also wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the packaging because the packaging is compostable. It says right on it, I'm worm food, which I love. (laughs) Like, yeah, tell us a little bit about like finding that packaging and choosing that. And
3: yeah, so one of the things that was really important to me was the compostability of the packaging. I just personally care very deeply about veering away from single use plastics as much as possible. And I think I'm lucky in terms of um, having a product that is very shelf stable. It's dry, it's lightweight, it's really easy. And so I think a lot of other product types don't have the luxury of going outside of plastics. Um, but since I had the option, I definitely wanted to do something that was compostable. And the reason, you know, I also had considered uh, materials that were recyclable versus compostable and ended up going with compostable because I figured. Even if someone didn't have municipal composting in their area, even if they ended up putting this in the landfill, it would still degrade much faster than you know anything else in the trash. And so I was comfortable with that, whereas something that's recyclable may not biodegrade um, in a reasonable amount of time. So I wanted to do something compostable, and then I just did a lot of research on you know what are the differences between backyard and home compostable versus industrial compostable? So I decided I wanted something that was backyard and home compostable to make it really easy and accessible for everyone. And I am so happy I found um, I found these uh, amazing pouch uh partner pouch manufacturing partners they're called Elevate Packaging. I actually also got to meet some of those guys at Expo West. Um they stopped by my my table at Fresh Ideas as well. So it was really cool to get to meet them in person. And I yeah, I love their packaging. I've tested um composting it in my own home compost and can guarantee that it works. <laughs> so um yeah, I'm just really really happy that I have an accessible option like them. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: And what should we be looking out for coming up next year with Uproot Tees in 2023? Um, anything that you're excited about, even if you can't share maybe all the details yet um, or yeah, just what are you thinking about? And what should we what should we look out for on the horizon?
3: Yeah, absolutely. There are so many things I'm really excited about now that I have one year of actually being in operations um, under my belt. I feel like I've ironed out some of the kinks from the beginning, hopefully. Um, But I am really excited to be launching new teas with my current Farm partners and just expanding the product line. So, um, just a couple of months ago, um, we had launched uh, two additional teas with our Japanese farm partner. Um, that's the Genmaicha that you mentioned before and the Hojicha. And we also launched a peppermint leaf tea with our Vermont farm partner. And I'm excited to go back to my farm partner in Hawaii and figure out um, what are some good additional products that we can launch with them. And just really building out a robust product line with these three existing farm partners first. Um, Eventually, I would love to expand to have more farm partners. But you know, as you know, supply chain is is a tough one. And so each additional farm that I add is it's a, a whole new supply chain. Um so for now we're gonna be working with our our and supporting our three existing farm partners and just expanding the product lines. And um I'm excited to be putting together um more of an experience kit um where you know the idea is that you can choose to purchase a kit that's for one or a kit that's to share with friends and family. So the uh, kit that's for one would come with a really cute mug, a strainer, um, a selection of teas, um, and probably a sp- you know a scooping spoon. And all of that would just be like beautifully branded and all tied together. And then the tea, uh, the kit. To share would come with its own little teapot or a press, you know, some sort of device that could hold a lot of tea when you're making a lot at once, as well as several different mugs or cups, um, and then a selection of teas as well. And so I'm really excited. I just love the customer unboxing experience and opening and seeing something so beautiful that makes people really excited to incorporate this into either their daily routine or a special experience. And so that is something we'll definitely be working on um, in 2023. Amazing.
1: And are you going to be mostly focused on e-commerce or are you going to be doing some retail expansion as well?
3: Yeah, great question. Um, the plan is to focus mostly on e-commerce still, um, although we do have a wonderful array of 20-ish um, retail partners right now. But I think it's just been so, so helpful to get that data and immediate feedback from customers through e-commerce. Um that I would love to continue focusing not on that in 2023. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: And I have, you sent me one of your lovely strainers and oh my gosh, like I have so many tea strainers and I think it might be my new favorite. Like it's so easy to clean, so fine. So you don't have any like, you know, extra dregs in the bottom. Like, yeah, I I really love it. It's the perfect size. So yeah, yeah, I can't wait to see the like kits you come up with. That's
3: going to be amazing. Thank you so much. I do love that strainer a lot. And, you know, I get a lot of questions about what are the best devices to use to steep loose leaf tea. And I think the shape of the strainer basket that we have is perfect because it's enough room to allow for the tea leaves to actually expand in the water. I really suggest that over, you know, the the medicine ball type of um, steepers because they kind of just don't give the tea leaves enough room to really let all of the flavor out. So I, yeah, I love our strainers.
1: Amazing. Well, I could talk with you about tea all day, but we should we me should too. probably <laughs> wrap it up here for for this particular segment. But I'm so glad that you came on the show today. So grateful for you sharing um, your tea with me and sharing more of your story, and just excited to keep cheering you on at Startup CBG um, and continue to see Uproot Teas grow. So thanks so much! Amazing, thank you so much, Jesse. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Uproot Teas, go to Uproot Teas. Dot com or follow uproot.T's on Instagram. Cindy also created a special discount code just for our listeners. So use code startupcpg at checkout for 10% off your order on her website. Thank you for listening in today. I'm so honored you joined me for this conversation. And I love hearing from you all with feedback, suggestions, or if you just want to say hi at podcast at startupcpg.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. If you liked this episode, we'd love for you to share it with a friend or colleague, subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and maybe even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you aren't yet in our Slack community of founders and experts, We'd love to see you there. You can get the free invite at startupcpg.com and find all our other awesome resources there like webinars, databases, the blog, the magazine and virtual and in-person events. And if you found yourself rocking out to our intro and outro music, which I do every single time, make sure to check out the Super Fantastics on Spotify. It's the band of our Startup CPG founder, Daniel Scharf. I'm Jesse Freitag, your host and producer. And on behalf of the whole team at Startup CPG, thank you for being here and see you next week.